and welcome to Future Voices, a podcast dedicated to highlighting people revolutionizing their fields. I'm Rachel Adams. And I'm Ida Smiley. So today we're reviving an interview I did a few months ago while I was still in school. For a sports podcast, I talked to Dr. Janelle Joseph, who is an assistant professor in critical studies of race and indigeneity at the University of Toronto. Her work includes looking at sports media and particularly how racialized women are portrayed. I did this interview because I didn't know anything about sports and I wanted to make the podcast subject matter basically anything but sports. And it was very timely now because we thought with all the issues coming up around the Olympics this year, it was a great opportunity to bring up this conversation again. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Dr. Janelle Joseph. Well, hi, Dr. Joseph. Thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Of course. Um, so maybe I'll just start by getting you to tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and your uh, research areas. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so um, I am an Afro-Caribbean Canadian, uh, born in Toronto, Ontario, and My research is uh, focused on the intersections of race, education, and sport. Uh, I did my undergraduate at the University of Western Ontario and had a one-year exchange at Victoria University in Australia, in Melbourne. And so I really uh, consider that as foundational to my exploration of the issues of race, education, and sport. And um, after my undergrad, I returned to Toronto and did both masters and PhDs at the University of Toronto, where I now work as an assistant professor. And what was it about uh, studying there that was so foundational for the direction you chose? Uh, to be honest, you know, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Toronto and um, at Western, I didn't have as much exposure as I needed to issues of anti-racism or political activism. And so it was really when I arrived in Melbourne and um, was exposed to a lot of student activism and there it was around uh, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous issues because the Indigenous peoples there, the Aboriginals are considered Black. And so that really exposed me to the the concept of uh, intersectional anti-racism protest and uh, the connections to sport were really obvious as well. In fact, that is where I first discovered capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian martial art. I I learned about it in Melbourne, Australia, and specifically in Sydney when I traveled there for the Olympics in 2000. So there was so much uh, happening there that, you know, I just wasn't um, aware of. Certainly there was activism happening in Toronto at that time, but I just wasn't aware of it and in London, Ontario as well. So traveling there, I came back with a real political consciousness and uh, wanted to pursue my studies in the intersections of sport and race. That's interesting. Capoeira is kind of um, having a moment in Vancouver right now. I'm, you're seeing it pop up in exercise studios everywhere. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. So that ended up forming the foundation for my master's research project. And I returned to it even for postdoctoral studies as well. So uh, I was training at the, um, over a period of about 15 years. I was training Capoeira with a group from Toronto, so it's uh, pretty close to my heart and close to my research as well. You published a paper recently about misogynoir in the media and how it has been applied to the tennis player Naomi Osaka. Um, Could you explain maybe what misogynoir is and how it is applied to players in sports media? 
Absolutely. So this is a term that combines uh, misogyny or anti-women contempt uh, with uh, the French word noir for black. And it is, uh, it evolves out of an intersectional black feminist uh, queer uh, perspectives that recognize that the kinds of racism that women, that black women face is different than um, men and people who are gendered otherwise. And um, the kinds of sexism that black women face is different than um, other women. And so focusing on that particular intersection allows us to illuminate some of the ways that, um, that misogyny and racism manifest. And uh, the, particularly in sports, I think it's really valuable because uh, while women are traditionally excluded from sport, generally speaking, it's assumed that um, black people are celebrated in sport. You know, our biggest professional sports, um, National Football League or National Basketball League, feature many, many black players and people equate that with some kind of racial equality. And uh, while those leagues certainly do have their racism problems as well, let's just park that for a moment and look at the opportunities that are available for black women. And the fact is that actually black women are excluded from sport disproportionately and uh, women generally speaking are um, disadvantaged within sport settings. So I think applying this theoretical framework specifically to black women in sport really illuminates you know, some of the ways that um, our, our bodies are represented, our words are sometimes misconstrued, and in fact, our, our very absence from many of the places brings more attention when there are a few uh, especially successful black women athletes. And I'm sure there's many examples, but are you, does any specific example come to mind when um, talking about misogynoir and how it's applied to Black women in sports? Yeah, well, the article that we wrote, I wrote it with my colleague, uh, student Sabrina Razak, and uh, we wrote that specifically at, about Naomi Osaka. We found that she was a really interesting case study because she holds so many identities. You know, in some uh, settings, uh, she's very explicit about uh, her blackness. She has a Haitian father and uh, spent most of her life growing up in the United States and so has some uh, affiliations with uh, African-American communities, but she has a Japanese mother. And we, all, we know that uh, blackness is part of the Japanese diaspora as well in Japanese culture, but of course it is uh, minimized and often marginalized. And so um, examining athletes who identify as mixed race or multicultural, um, who have many different affiliations, uh, I think provides a really unique lens to think about, you know, what are the ways that uh, these athletes in particular are uh, discriminated against? Um, there was uh, many examples, especially around Osaka, of um, people suggesting that she was not Japanese enough because she plays professionally for Japan. Um, and so the, the discourses around, you know, how dark her skin is, so like literally coming back to these biological understandings of race uh, and um, critiquing her uh, for um, some of her uh, on-court or off-court behaviors, you know, those, the, the kind of scrutiny that she faces, I think is unlike other 
most other athletes. Serena Williams is another obvious example, especially given the affiliation with tennis and you know her, her status as the greatest of all time, um, especially when we compare across different sports, uh, men's and women's included, you know, um, the kind of scrutiny that Serena Williams experiences, especially when she is vocal about discrimination that she feels she's experiencing. Um, I think it, it illuminates just how difficult it is for these athletes to, to be their best, to, to just focus on the sport when there's all of these narratives that are uh, circulating about them and around them. Yeah, and I think uh, one really um, prominent example of that was when a, few, a year or two ago, um, when Serena Williams was disputing a call by a ref and she got a lot of scrutiny for that, whereas um, other athletes doing similar things, you know, you look at all these football players, soccer players who, you know, argue with refs all the time and they didn't get nearly as much um, backlash as Serena Williams did. Yeah, absolutely. And even down to the, you know, the, the vocalizations that she makes, you know, like every tennis player grunts. <laughs> that is a fact of the sport. And yet somehow when she does it, you know, there's all these animalistic comparisons. And even, you know, I think um, uh, sports uh, media, the photographers, they take a, advantage of, you know, a lot of sometimes her positioning and, you know, the pictures that get published of her, I think they just don't compare to other athletes in her sport or other athletes across other sports. Um, I don't have the specific names for you, but uh, certainly something that's come to my attention in most recent weeks is the activism of the women in the WNBA and the um, the ways that they are being really vocal and overt and you know putting in some cases their jobs on the line to speak up against racial racial injustice. Uh, I think it speaks to the misogynoir that they have experienced in the league around issues of sexuality, around issues of parenting. You know, many of those uh, women um, have children and during the uh, coronavirus pandemic um, had to make some difficult decisions about how they, um, how they would manage their multiple identities while playing. And so I think the, the resistance that some women experience um, also around issues of pregnancy and, you know, their pay and status. There's been a lot of activism in recent years uh, that's been led by Black women that ends up benefiting all athletes, uh, but it's particularly because of their intersectional identities and the misogynoir they experience that they are aware of these issues. And finally, we're coming to a time where they are able to speak up. And you kind of touched a little bit on this, but uh, what are some ways that these athletes are resisting the negative uh, media portrayals that are, you know, kind of being forced on them? Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, um, Serena Williams, I think is well known for um, affiliating with other uh, celebrities such as Beyonce and really just uh, um, celebrating her her body, celebrating her curves, celebrating her culture, and not uh, feeling any need to uh, shy away despite uh, media criticisms of how big and how round she is, for example. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a lot of women athletes that just um, have just accepted um, they, they not only accept who they are, but they celebrate who they are. Um, there's a Canadian athlete, Christina Alogba, who is a, a water polo player. She recently retired from the national team, but she's played for 15 years representing Canada. And she self-identifies as a 
mannish woman, a lesbian player who uh, plays water polo at the highest levels internationally. I think she's playing in Italy now. And so being able to just celebrate, you know, these are, um, these are my, my, my people, this is my culture, this is who I am, and not shying away from uh, that identity, not um, staying in the closet or being quiet about who they are, even just that act. And, you know, it's such, it shows, I think, where our culture is that just the act of showing up as yourself <laughs> is a revolutionary act, you know? They're, the resistance comes just from being who they are, just from being open about uh, their, their identities and their affiliations and their needs, you know, especially uh, in the case of those uh, athletes um, in the WNBA who have fought for uh, parental rights and um, leaves and, um, you know, the, the fact that maternity would be a burden on any athlete. I would hope that in 2021 we would be <laughs> past that, but clearly we're not. And we know that uh, Black women in particular will be uh, disproportionately affected by any policies that are, um, are curtailing human rights. So I think that the, the showing up, speaking their truths is an acts of resistance that we're seeing every day. And I know there's a lot of work to do and it's the media landscape isn't anywhere near where, you know, we want it to be, but do you see progress? Do you see things getting better with, you know, more women entering sports journalism more representation entering sports journalism? Yes, I do think that we're getting there. You know, there's the burn it all down podcast. There's a number of different, uh, athletes that are athletes and, athletes turned journalists, people who are interested in sport. Um, so there's, there is progress, but I don't want us to get uh, complacent. You know, we have far, far, far to go, uh, but I'm really happy to see that there are definitely more women who are interested in sports journalism. And I think it's through their, their presence and their lens on stories that uh, we will see that shift in culture. You know, there are researchers in the United States, uh, Cheryl Cookie and Mike Mesner are two names that come to mind, who have done repeated studies. Um, you know, I think it's every three to five years they do studies on uh, sports media, particularly representation of women in the sports media, and the statistics don't look good. You know, over the last 15 to 20 years, the ways that women are represented and the amount of airtime and um, newspaper coverage that they get, uh, it has not changed significantly in that amount of time. So we still do have a far way to go, but certainly uh, entrance into um, undergraduate or graduate programs in sports journalism and sports management and even kinesiology, I think that um, the, the representation is starting to change there. Soon we'll hopefully see a shift uh, among the professoriate and people who are leading the charge in teaching these things and also uh, in industry as well. And kind of on that note, um, where, what are some, what's some advice you can give aspiring journalists and sports journalists going into the industry so that they don't perpetuate these negative stereotypes and these negative portrayals? Mm -hmm. One thing I think that is a relatively easy fix, although I know sometimes the exigencies and urgencies of the industry prevent this from happening, but an easy fix is uh, transparency and accountability. Like if you're writing a story about people, can you run that story by people before it's published, right? And so then it's not about them, um, it's, it's with them. And so if we could shift to more of a, a, a partnership 
in media, I think that would make a big difference. Um, frankly, that takes some power away from journalists. And you know, if you if you are only interested in writing from your own perspective, then um, that's not going to be a an approach that you're ready to adopt. But if you are interested in making change and representing people in more authentic and true ways, I think then that's the direction we need to go. You know, I identify as an ethnographer. And so I am a sports storyteller as well. And so I think I have a lot in common with journalists, but the difference between my community-based research and some of the things that I read um, in um, online news is that, uh, first of all, my communities are not often represented. And so, you know, there's, it's just an a absence. Other than, you know, those few names that I mentioned, where are the black female recreational athletes you know where are the leagues that have muslim hijabi women who are um you know making a difference in their sporting communities we don't hear those stories quite often so i think it's the, the people who you're researching or who you are um, telling stories about needs to change uh, but also um just emphasizing again that partnership with you know like ask people what stories they want to tell and then try and share those as opposed to bringing a kind of Western colonial lens and you know, checking, checking the questions that you ask so that we are focusing on, um, on the achievements and on the joys and successes, not only on the trauma and discrimination and exclusions. That's a really interesting point because if you think about it, probably a lot of the very wealthy like NFL, NBA, or um, like NHL players, they probably have a lot of control over who they talk to and how they're portrayed. Whereas these women and women of color who are in, you know, less of a power situation when it comes to their relationship with the media don't have that control over how they're being portrayed. Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe have just not been taught that they could have that control. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've only just recently learned from uh, some of my colleagues, Shireen Ahmed is a sports journalist who has taught me a lot. Uh, and um, the kinds of work that she does really emphasizes the idea that uh, we need to take that power, that we need, we, um, the, this, the athletes need to be asking the questions. You know, we, we don't just need to be passive in the uh, sports journalism landscape. Mm -hmm. Well, those are all my questions. Uh, thank you again for joining me and taking the time out of your day to talk to me about this. No problem. Thank you again for the invitation. Thank you again so much to Dr. Janelle Joseph for taking the time to talk to us. So Ida, what did you think of this conversation? I know for me personally, I took away a lot of tips and lessons to my own journalism and my own work. Um, so I'm curious to know what you got from it. For me, it definitely got me way more interested in sports, knowing how much these athletes are doing activism work. And like she had mentioned, putting their jobs on the line, trying to balance um, being a mother as well as being an athlete. There's so much more about the politics to it now that I don't think I had that awareness of previous to hearing this conversation. So it's definitely gotten me a lot more excited to follow sports, especially women's sports. I always knew that sports was political, but there's a lot of stuff in popular memory, like the 1968 Olympics, uh, where two African Americans raised their fists in protest. But you know, I don't really think about it a lot in my daily life because I'm not really a sports person. But you know, especially with everything that has come up with this Olympics, it's like it's a it's pretty much been a constant in the last month or month and a half or two. 
And especially with, I mean, we've heard a lot about Naomi Osaka lately and with Serena Williams and her past work about, um, you know, speaking up as well and the injustices that she experiences as a Black woman in sports. And I think just the constant questioning of people's, um, for, you know, for Naomi Osaka not being Asian enough or not being Black enough. And I think that is just so relatable to people who are mixed um, race all across the board and to have her you know, constantly under scrutiny, but also speaking up about it. Um, that awareness has been, I find to me personally, quite empowering being um, a first generation Canadian and having kind of my own issues with my identity and like my dual own confusion. Identity. Dual identity, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, with Naomi Osaka, she, I'm not a, a tennis follower, so I cannot remember the name of the tournament, but when she took a break from doing the the media interviews for her mental health. And then I think she eventually pulled out of that tournament because people were giving her so much scrutiny over that. And the Federation was going to charge her because it was part of her contract and all of that. When like, you know, these tennis players, they, you know, spend so much of their energy and they put everything on the court. And then they don't want to necessarily do a, an interview at like 12 p.m. at night when they've just say lost a match and it's like some of the dumb questions that athletes get from sports reporters is just you know it's embarrassing it's embarrassing some of the questions that come up to be in the same field as that and you're like we can as a profession we can do better yeah and especially how black women are not being represented enough and then when they are being represented then yeah there's the issues of misogynoir and the discriminations that they face in the media so it's all around needs to be way better than where it's at right now and i mean like i think while we were talking about this we have to bring up simone biles and what you know what she recently did at the gymnastics in the Olympics where I know I think I think we're all familiar with that at one point but or at this point her pulling out because of mental health because she could paralyze herself or die you know there's gymnasts who have been paralyzed because they didn't land properly so when you know when you're taking a gymnast like Simone Biles and they are taking time out for their mental health it's a matter of life and death for her and I think there was some negative portrayal of that, but I think for the most part, like media has overanalyzed that to such an extent. And I mean, here we are talking about it as well, but when Dr. Janelle Joseph talks about showing up and speaking your truth as an athlete, as an act of resistance, whether or not Simone Biles intended it as an act of resistance, like it is, that's what it became. Exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want to break if they're being pushed too hard? Don't we all wish to be able to do that? I think it's amazing that she took that stance and is leading by example to say, I don't want to push my body to the fact that it's going to affect the rest of my life negatively or my mental health as well. Many people, I mean, not to that extreme of a level of competition, but even just people in their day to day going to work. I think we always hear people of burnout and exhaustion and you know how it's affecting their mental health and their sleep and their overall health and their bodies and all of that we hear about this constantly just in people in their day-to-day -day doing a nine-to-five and who wouldn't want to be able to take a step back and I think we we hold athletes up to such a high regard especially you know I was listening to the radio the other day and this was a topic that came up and it's like there's so many obscure sports in the Olympics that we don't follow until 
that four-year cycle comes around and then as soon as the olympics come up everyone gets so invested in these in these sports and you're like you don't know you don't follow the sport like all of this stuff and these athletes like they're killing their bodies you know so many olympic athletes have so many physical problems that follow them their whole lives and they're you know, to our standards, so young when they have to retire because of that. It's just crazy how much pressure we put on these Olympic athletes and how much they must put on themselves. And you, you take um, an industry like gymnastics in the States, and it's a business, and a lot of people are making a lot of money off of these young women. And yeah. to be able to walk out of the stadium and then walk back in a tracksuit like Simone Biles did and said, I can't do it, I'm not doing it. I think that's just pretty, it is pretty remarkable. And it, ha- it will have implications down the line for young girls entering the sport. Yes, absolutely. So Rachel, where can we find more about Dr. Janelle Joseph and her work? You can find more about Dr. Janelle Joseph on her profile for the University of Toronto Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. You can also find her on Twitter at Janelle Joseph. That's Janelle with three L's. Links are in the description. You can find us, Future Voices, on Instagram at Future Voices Co. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other podcast streaming platform. Thanks for listening.